time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Right Conversations podcast. I am thrilled to have another therapist on today to chat about two concepts that I think you are going to really love. Um, And I personally find very important. Uh, Before we hit record, I was just sharing with this guest that I will introduce you to in a moment uh, that these two words get tossed around a lot, especially in the online space and the social media space. And um, they're used kind of flippantly and they're actually quite large concepts and complicated and layered things. And so today we are having a conversation about self-compassion and mindfulness with fellow therapist Gianna Laloda. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to chat. Same, same. So tell us about you, what you do in the world, what lights you up, Mm -hmm. anything you want to share. Sure. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, I am a therapist based in New York. So I currently work at a group practice called NYC Cognitive Therapy. So at our practice, we specialize in CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I work with primarily adults. So 18 and up, some exceptions to that, a few teens here and there, um, but mostly young adults. Um, I specialize in treating anxiety disorders, um, OCD, people who are going through just life transitions in general. Um, And then in addition to my work as a therapist, I'm also a licensed yoga teacher. I'm certified in Reiki, and I'm currently getting certified in EFT tapping too, which I'm very excited about. So I mentioned that just to say that um, from my perspective, healing mind and body together is super important. I love that. I love the holistic approach. And it's, I find it very, very, very powerful when therapists can acknowledge that talk therapy is not the only thing that is going to help move someone forward. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. I, I think that through my work with CBT, especially I've able to, I've been able to see where it can be very powerful, but also like where maybe there are some gaps. So in terms of like filling in those gaps, um, I think mindfulness, tapping, all of that body work really supplements it well. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, let's let's dive right in. Which do you want to start with first? Mindfulness or self-compassion? Yeah, let's start. Let's start with mindfulness. Let's go for it. Okay. So before we hit record, (laughs) I was telling you that I see this word used often, Mm -hmm. especially in like the health coach wellness space. And I want to be very clear. I know a lot of health coaches that are doing incredible work. This is not like shitting on an entire industry. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but the word itself, how would you define it, explain it, um, conceptualize it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a great starting place, right? Because I think people have different definitions of what they think of when they mean mindfulness. So getting clear about the definition is a great first step. So to me, mindfulness means approaching the current moment with a sense of curiosity, noticing what is happening around you, um, but doing that non-judgmentally, right? So the non-judgment piece is key. If you're noticing what's going on around you, that's great. But if you're judging it, that's not necessarily doing it in a mindful way. So the non-judgment piece is really key. Um, at the practice that I work at, I actually run a 12-week mindfulness group that I love. And so um, I usually have clients who are a part of that group do this exercise. The first week out of the 12, I'll ask them, okay, how do you define mindfulness right now without sharing any info with them? And I'll have them write up a definition. And then the last week, 12 of 12, I'll have them do that same exercise again. And their definitions have like totally shifted throughout the course of the group. So that's always really exciting to see. That's really cool. Can you give an example of how you've seen a definition shift? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think ultimately people recognize the importance of the non-judgment throughout the course of the 12 weeks, whereas maybe that's something that they weren't totally aware of to start with. Um, I also think that people get a little bit clear of a sense of what we mean when we say mindfulness versus what we mean when we say meditation, right? So mm. sometimes those two concepts can be a bit confused for people as well. Love that. Okay. So noticing what's going on, going on around you without judgment. Mm -hmm. It sounds so simple. And mm -hmm. yet 12-week groups, like we know it's a whole section of DBT skills groups. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is so hard for us as humans to wrap our head around and practice? Yeah. Well, as a therapist who's based in New York, I'll share, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll share what I observe through new from New York-based clients, right? So speaking from a the perspective of a New Yorker, like we live in a city that's so fast-paced. We are running around all the time from appointment to appointment, meeting to meeting, um, work to happy hour. Like we do not stop as New Yorkers, right? We've got that grit. We've got that like motivation that keeps us going, which is amazing. But we don't often take a moment to pause, slow down and check in with ourselves. So the way that I look at it is mindfulness is like a prerequisite for CBT, right? Like I start with mindfulness before I get into any sort of CBT work because we have to be mindful of our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors in order to be successful at CBT, right? You'd be surprised like how many of the clients that I work with that are not able to identify their thoughts their feelings or their behaviors, right? Because they're not used to checking in on those sorts of things. So that's usually where I'll have clients start. So can you give us, uh, for anyone listening, and this can be real or pretend, totally up to you, um, an example of 
what it looks like to notice those things and not judge them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of noticing like thoughts and emotions and behaviors, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or even the things around that, like, however you want to interpret that is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'll say, let's say someone is practicing, um, getting in touch with their thoughts and emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. So doing more internal mindfulness rather than focusing externally on the environment, I would first guide them to tap into themselves, right? So to get really comfortable in whatever position, posture works for them, just getting comfy is key. And then from there, either picking a focal point in front of them or closing their eyes if they feel safe to do that. And then getting really still really quiet, noticing, listening, getting curious. So I'll often guide clients through almost like a three-part check-in where I'll have them check in with their physical body in that moment. So noticing like any sort of areas of tension or places where they might be gripping. Then I'll have them check in with their emotional body. So starting to understand if there are any emotions that are right beneath the surface. And then I'll have them check in with their minds, with their thoughts to see what sort of thoughts are present that day. And throughout that practice, I'll have, I'll, you know, keep giving the reminder to approach it from a place of curiosity. So really it's about like switching out of the judgment and into a space of curiosity. How can we get curious instead of judging the thought or judging the emotion that's showing up today? I love that. I I talk often and anybody who has followed me on Instagram or has listened to this podcast has probably heard me talk about this. But for those who haven't, I'm going to say it again. Um, The curiosity to me is the anecdote to judgment and shame. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's unbelievable what putting on like a hat of curiosity and looking inward will do versus not having that hat on. And because we judge the fuck out of ourselves. Like mm-hmm. it's wild how much we judge ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. And the judgment makes you want to go away, right? Mm-hmm. Like whereas the curiosity makes you want to go towards. So, okay. I One of the things that I've noticed with both clients I've worked with and like even friends and family members or just like people I'm talking to in the world is that, because we don't get education around the general public doesn't get education around identifying emotions Mm -hmm. that trying to separate thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. are, it it is so hard. And I'm wondering if there's any suggestions you have, or if you've come across this also, um, and how you kind of handle that for anybody listening, who's like, yeah, I don't know what the difference is between like my thinking brain and my feeling brain. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think, first of all, this is an issue because we're not taught this as children, right? Like we're not necessarily taught how to identify our emotions. Maybe we don't have um, a robust like emotional vocabulary. Like we quite literally don't have the language or words 
to describe how it is that we're feeling. Our, our emotional vocabulary is really limited, right? If you ask people how they're doing, how they're feeling, most often they'll say, good, bad, fine, meh, whatever, right? <laughs> I'm so, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I think a really good starting place, if you think that that is your issue, is to start to explore different resources out there like feelings wheels for example and it can sound a little bit corny but what that does is that gives you the emotional vocabulary that you might be lacking and a lot of them are organized in a really like beautiful way so you can start to understand how different emotions sort of relate to one another um so that can be really great but then in terms of like differentiating between thoughts and feelings that can be a bit tricky too so what i'll usually say is a feeling can generally be distilled down into one word right like you can get to that mm. one word whereas a thought is going to be longer it's going to be a statement so for example i'll ask a client oh how were you feeling in that moment and they'll say oh well i was feeling like i was being judged Okay, that's not necessarily feeling that's the automatic thought right because that's that statement that was the thought that you were having i'm being judged versus okay, maybe the feeling was self conscious right so we kind of like are able to make that bridge between thought and feeling once we're clear which is which. I thank you for that example, and I really love the simple sentence of it can usually be distilled down to one word. So if it's longer, it's probably a thought. That's such a great, quick way to like check yourself into what you're expressing. It's probably one of my biggest pet peeves and, and not in my work as a therapist, to be very clear, <laughs> but as a human in the world, in my, uh, in my own relationships. And it, I know it drives other people insane is when I hear someone say, I feel, and then it's followed up with like a five, you know, five sentences of like experiences and thoughts. And I'm like, okay, that's your opinion. Totally. I want to hear your opinion. How did you feel? <laughs> and they're like, oh, Rachel, stop. I'm, like, I'm sorry. I, I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I feel that too. I, I do that with people in my life too. I'm like, but what was the feeling? You know? yeah. <laughs> They're like, can you please stop? I'm like, I'm <laughs> sorry. No, I can't. Uh -huh. So for anyone who's like, okay, cool. This sounds great, but it sounds really fucking hard. Mm -hmm. What are the benefits for someone to try to be mindful? So again, noticing the internal thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and then also doing that with non-judgment. What is the benefit to that? What can someone expect? Yeah. Well, I think when it comes to being aware of our thoughts, that puts us in a position of being able to discern which thoughts are true, which thoughts are helpful, which thoughts are supportive, versus which thoughts are maybe not true, rather just based on our interpretation, and may not actually be serving us, right? And then in terms of being mindful of our emotions, I mean, that really helps a lot with emotional regulation, right? Like when we stuff our emotions down, they don't disappear, they don't go away, they're still there somewhere. But approaching them mindfully lets us start to bring them to the surface 
gives us a chance to feel them and then therefore helps us move through them a little bit more quickly. It feels counterintuitive, right? It's like, I don't wanna feel the feeling, I wanna go away from it, but you actually have to go towards it and feel it in order for it to pass. Yes, I, I describe it often to clients as like a little kid when they're like, hello, 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 pay attention to me, pay attention to me, like mom, 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 mom. And like the second you look at them and say, yes, honey, what? They're like, okay, bye. And yeah. without that acknowledgement or without that recognition, they're just gonna like keep poking and keep poking. And sometimes they do have something to say or show mm -hmm. you. And sometimes they don't, like all they want is to have you turn around and say, hey, I see you, yes, how can I help you? And they're like, okay, I'm out of here. And I have found that emotions will operate similarly sometimes. Yeah, I love that analogy. That's so good and so true, right? And also that is part part of being mindful also allows you to put a label on the emotion. So when I say a label, I don't mean a negative label. I just mean giving it a name, simply giving it a name, just doing that helps separate you from the emotion a little bit more, creates like a little bit of distance between you and the emotion. So therefore, you're probably less likely to like over identify with it. The same goes for thoughts too, right? Like when we approach thoughts or emotions in a more mindful way, creates a little bit more space. So we don't maybe over identify with these things if they're not serving us. The Honey Pot is more than the products in your bathroom cabinet. It's embracing that time of the month. It's staying balanced through the ups and downs, good sex and bad sex. It's exploring, it's learning, it's plant-derived. Powered by herbs and science, the first complete personal care system to get you what you need when you need it. Check out The Honey Pot at Target, Walmart, Walgreens, and on thehoneypot.co. You can enter code RACHEL20, that's R-A-C-H-E-L-2-0, for 20% off your first Honey Pot order on thehoneypot.co. Can you share more about what you mean by over-identify? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll give the example of like an, an emotion, let's say. So I work with a lot of clients who deal with anxiety disorder. So everything from generalized anxiety to social anxiety, um, you know, panic disorder, specific phobias, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll, I'll hear this a lot, right? A client will over identify with the emotion of anxiety in the sense that they'll say, I'm just an anxious person, right? Mm. Like that's just me, you know? Um, and so we do a lot of work around being able to separate out the emotion from the true self. I, yeah, I hear that often. And I definitely went through that myself when I was diagnosed with panic disorder when I was young, um, younger, I wasn't like, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, when I was diagnosed with panic disorder, I, I was like, well, that's it. That's my life. Like I'm just simply an anxious person. I come from a long line of like anxious Jewish women. Like this is just my fate. Okay. Here we are. Like, I'll just take this medication forever and be in therapy forever. And like my life is panic attacks and avoiding these situations. And like one of the most powerful things that 
I did in, in therapy over the years was exactly that was separate Mm -hmm. out and realize that I may be a person who is more sensitive Mm -hmm. and maybe more prone to feel anxiety more often than some other people. But that does not make me an anxious person. It's not a personality trait. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. You said that so beautifully, right? Like I am someone who's maybe prone to feeling more anxiety. Sure, right? But that doesn't have to be your whole identity, you know? So it's worth like questioning what it does for you to identify in that way or for that to be the narrative that you're feeding yourself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so good. So, okay, let's now pivot into Mm self-compassion. And I'm wondering before we dive into like your definition of that, is there a bridge for you between mindfulness and Mm self-compassion? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think self-compassion can especially be helpful when we're dealing with really painful emotions, right? It's certainly not limited to those moments, but when we're experiencing difficult emotions, um, it's really important for us to meet ourselves with some compassion during those times. And I think the link also has to do with the fact that like when we're in a more mindful state, like it does help us tap into the compassion that lives within, in the body too. So I'll get clients into a relaxed kind of meditative state, and then I'll have them tap into the heart center, the space here, which in um, my eyes is like where the self-compassion lives, like here in the heart chakra, this heart center area. Love that. So how do you define Mm self-compassion? Yeah. So I think self-compassion all starts with number one, recognizing that we're in a moment of suffering and then recognizing that that suffering is maybe not necessarily unique to us but universal in the sense that to be human means that we will suffer so self-compassion is about meeting yourself um, in those moments right like meeting yourself with compassion rather than with criticism or with judgment um, and i will say my definition is Um, very similar to, I would say, like Kristen Neff's definition of self-compassion. So she is a um, a therapist. Self-compassion is her specialty. So I just want to shout her out just um, to be clear that I did not make up that definition for myself (laughs) necessarily. Um, I really am a, a fan of Kristen Neff and I like how she defines it. So my definition is pretty similar to hers. I love her work too. I, and for anyone who, um, we'll put her, her info in the show notes as well there. She has some great exercises on her website. Um, similar to how Brene Brown specializes in, you know, researching shame. And I mean, she's branched out now more so, but, um, Kristen Neff is like truly specialized in self-compassion and yeah, thanks for, thanks for shouting her out. So how can someone, oh man, How can someone cultivate self-compassion for themselves? Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll share a little bit about maybe what that journey was like for me first. I love that. Use that as like a starting place. So yeah, I um, 
I call myself like a recovering perfectionist, right? So um, very much uh, an overachiever, someone who, who tried to be perfect in all areas, right? I believed that I needed to look perfect, act perfect, be perfect at work or school or in relationships, whatever it was, I needed to be perfect, right? So that was the this idea that I had many years ago. And that, um, you know, dictated my behaviors, how I showed up in a lot of spaces, how I thought about myself. Mm. And um, in my own personal therapy work, I did internal family systems, IFS therapy. So um, this was over a decade ago now. So I started doing IFS before it was like really in the zeitgeist. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I'm really excited. People are starting to know a little bit more about it, right? It's really exciting. But the basis of IFS or internal family systems therapy is that at our center, we all have what they call the true self or the self with the capital S. And the true self has all of these really beautiful qualities. They call them the eight C's. So um, the true self is compassionate, creative, curious, clear, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so the idea in IFS is that at our core, we've got this true self, but we also have all of these little parts around all of these parts, a lot of them are really young, like inner child parts, um, but they all serve some kind of purpose. So the idea is that in IFS, what you do is you sort of like facilitate an interaction between the true self and all of these little various parts that come up. So for me, I brought up the perfectionist point before because I realized that perfectionist was actually just a part. So um, instead of being like, gosh, I hate this part of me. I wish I wasn't this way. You know, this is exhausting. This is terrible. I just want to get rid of this perfectionism. It's like, no, like that perfectionism is a part that's been used to playing a particular role. And then I was able to meet that part from a place of the true self and recognize oh, this part serves a purpose, right? Like this part has been doing the best that it can. And so instead of judging it or trying to get rid of it or push it away, I was able to recognize the purpose it served and ultimately meet it with compassion and let it soften too and let it know, hey, I see you, I get what you've been doing. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. But actually I, as the true self now, I'm going to be the one to sort of like navigate situations in, in present day. So that for me, um, the, all the IFS work I've done personally is how I've been able to cultivate it within. That's so, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that personal stories are one of the best ways that people can learn and recognize things. So thank you so much for, for opening up about that. Yeah. Um, IFS is awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds like it really allowed you to see all of the pieces and honor them and then yeah. put you back in the driver's seat of deciding what was going to make decisions. And, and mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Right. And so, um, IFS says that the true self is compassionate, right? So it, it's like tapping into that space 
right? Um, yeah, that's what the practice has looked like for me. And then in terms of like a lot working with clients, I'll usually start with exploring self-criticism and judgment with them first, right? I don't think we can jump straight to cultivating self-compassion necessarily. For a lot of people, that feels like way too big of a jump if there's someone that's so harsh on themselves. Yeah. So first we'll look at, okay, well, what role is this self-critic playing for you, right? Like truly, what benefit do you believe that that serves? Because oftentimes the biggest barrier for people when it comes to cultivating self-compassion are these quote unquote positive beliefs that they have about self-criticism, right? So people will think I have to criticize myself because I have to push. I have to motivate myself to act. And I, if I'm compassionate, that means I'm soft and weak and just going to make all these excuses for myself. So it's also some of those like misconceptions about self-compassion too, that keep people from actually practicing it or seeing value in that. If someone listening is like, yeah, that's exactly what I think. It makes you weak and soft and I have to, what would you say to them? Yeah. Yeah. I would ask where they learned that first of all, right? They learned that somewhere, you know? Um, and then I would ask, is that true? Right? Like, is that true? You know, is, is that compassion? Um, no. And starting to get clear about, do you actually respond well to self-criticism? Right? Because people have beliefs that they do, but in reality, often it just, it's not as effective as we think it's going to be, right? Like I'll use the example, if someone is trying to, um, let's say like reach a particular goal or integrate a new habit into their lives and they're having a difficult time doing that, they quote unquote fall off the bandwagon and then they beat themselves up over it. It's like, oh, you know, I, I suck. I, I can't integrate this new habit and um you know telling themselves that probably isn't going to make it any easier to integrate the habit instead it's meeting themselves with compassion in that moment recognizing yeah it's difficult to integrate a new habit let me try again tomorrow rather than beating myself up over this in the moment which might not be serving me even though there's a part that believes it will that is so powerful. The separation of, okay, it does this actually work. <laughs> like my belief is that this will happen if I don't do it. Okay, cool. I think a lot of us can probably relate to a, that in many different ways, mm -hmm. but that the next step of the question of like, does it work the way that I just said it does? Mm -hmm. And like really reflecting on that and ask it like, what has happened? when I have been hard on myself, yeah. like, do I show up better the next day? Do, mm -hmm. Is, is the habit more easily implemented? Mm -hmm. And like the answer for the majority of people I'm guessing that you've seen is no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Oh, okay. So is there anything around self-compassion or mindfulness just on this, on this level that we're talking about it today? that you want to make sure people know or understand that we didn't get to in our conversation? Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I would say that um, if you're looking for a place to start and sort of like something that incorporates both mindfulness and self-compassion, I would experiment or explore like loving kindness meditations. And if you're someone who's so hard on yourself, might feel really uncomfortable or actually really foreign to extend that self-compassion. So I just want to like normalize that as a part of the process, as a part of the process, right? At first, it can feel really uncomfortable, really foreign. You might feel undeserving of it. Um, but there's a lot of really great resources online, all these different sorts of like loving kindness meditations that walk you through the process and allow you to tap into that compassion within the body because that's ultimately where it lives. Beautiful, beautiful. We will put all of your info in the show notes and where people can get a hold of you. But for anyone who is listening and doesn't want to dig through show notes, where where can folks find you? Yeah, I uh, have a, an Instagram called Mindful Therapy NYC, where I share a lot about uh, mindfulness, self-compassion, so the topics we spoke about today, and share a lot of like really tangible tips and actionable things that people can put into practice in their day-to-day. -day. So you can follow me there if you're interested. Amazing. And if someone wants to, to work with you as a client, what's the best way to get in touch? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the, the name of the group practice where I work is called NYC Cognitive Therapy. Um, so you can search for our practice and um, fill out our contact form that we have on the website and mention that you're interested in working with me. I also have a direct link to the practice website on my Instagram too, just to make it nice and easy. Perfect. Thank you so much for talking with me and breaking down these topics that are misused, generalized, and really complicated and simple. I really appreciate your approach to this and just the, the content that you're putting out into the world around it. It's all so helpful. So thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together. <laughs>